My name is Ann Wu, and I'm the web director for the Behavioral Science Health Services Research Assembly of the American Thoracic Society. Today's podcast features Samuel M. Brown, an associate professor of pulmonary and critical care medicine in medical ethics and humanities at the University of Utah School of Medicine. He is the director of the Center for Humanizing Critical Care and has written a book, Valley of Shadows, that thinks about the failure of living wills and the need for better replacements, alongside a vigorous call for reform in the way we operate ICUs. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Can you start by telling us a little bit about uh, dehumanization in medicine? It's a, it's a long and old story, the notion that a person becomes less human when that person becomes a patient. And we've been worried about it in the global West at least since the 1960s when we began to worry about whether the institutions in which we live really had our best interests at heart. And the critiques of physicians and other clinicians as being the source of dehumanization have sometimes been quite unfair and sometimes been sadly and desperately true. And after some experiences of my own as the spouse of a patient, I understood a little bit more of the parts of the criticism of medicine as dehumanizing that actually were sadly true. The basic concept behind dehumanization is that an individual comes to be seen as lacking the rich internal mental life of another person. And in the intensive care unit and in medicine commonly, at a minimum, fear and a relative lack of power in a medical hierarchy place someone at a disadvantage in terms of their expression of their rich internal life, and particularly in intensive care where many of us at least train and may continue to work. People may, in fact, at the time of their critical illness, lack a rich internal life. They may be, frankly, comatose. They may be delirious. They may be frightened. And commonly, they're undergoing procedures that run the range from the invasion of their genitalia to place a drainage catheter into the urinary bladder or the placement of a breathing tube into their windpipe through their mouth, that organ that's so important to our expression of ourselves as human beings. This is the organ with which we speak and smile and frown and cry and kiss and greet. And it's violated by a life-saving device. So there are aspects of dehumanization that are related to the simple physiology. There are aspects of dehumanization that are related to the life support treatments. And then There are aspects of dehumanization that are part of what I think is an ultimately maladaptive approach to managing the stress of working in medicine, of knowing that a certain number of the people you care for will die even under your care. This particularly affects us in the intensive care unit or in lung transplantation, advanced lung diseases, 
cystic fibrosis as they get into the later phases of adulthood. We as clinicians will treat people who will die. And we have to do hard, complicated things at times of great stress. So there's an element of dehumanization that is the clinician attempting to maintain the clinician's sanity. And my sense is I've been working on this for the last few years, both in research and writing and in training the next generation of clinicians, is that I think there are adaptive and maladaptive approaches to maintaining the necessary distance. Does that seem reasonably responsive, Anne? Yes, sorry. I was busy um, muting and unmuting, and so there's that delay. So, no, no, uh, no, no worries at all. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Brown, is dehumanization always bad? When I started out about four or five years ago working on this, I made the assumption that dehumanization was always bad every time it appeared. And then as I pushed my colleagues and trainees harder and harder on this point, I started to get some pushback. And one nurse, even I remember it very clearly, said, Sam, with all this requirement that the families be at the bedside as much as they want to be, even during procedures, that they be on rounds, that they're always right there and their needs come first, you're dehumanizing me. And I really took that to heart, that even though I think our highest priority is to our patients and their loved ones, we also need to be thoughtful about the rich internal life of each other and of the trainees and of the clinicians that work with and for us. And that caused me to do some soul-searching and to acknowledge that it probably is the case that if clinicians kept continuously in mind the full humanity of every patient they treated, they would burn out in just a couple of months. Just the sheer weight of grief at the loss of a patient you continuously conceive as as fully human as you are in every rich detail is too much. And the second thing I noticed is that we as clinicians do two sets of things that require at least a mild, careful, temporary dehumanization. One is highly technical procedures. A heart surgeon during the surgery should probably be fully in the flow and zone of manipulating the heart to achieve the appropriate valve replacement, should not be rehearsing in his mind the networks of loved ones that are cheerfully worried about the outcome of the procedure, about the patient's love of Beethoven and walks in the fall through fields of wildflowers. Now, that would be a full humanization of the patient, but it's likely that it would interfere with the procedure. And ultimately, the patient, I think almost all of us are willing to acknowledge that when push comes to shove, if a certain level of ignorance of us as a person is required, 
to make a technical procedure successful. So be, for us in the intensive care unit, airway management is probably the closest we have to a highly technical procedure because of this risk of one or two percent every time we push the drugs of organization. The approach that I've come to take and that I'm teaching trainees is to thoughtfully and with self-awareness acknowledge that you're entering a moment when modest dehumanization for the patient's benefit is appropriate. And I'll even, since I do my procedures with the family members in the room, I'll even acknowledge that verbally. I'm now going to focus entirely on this procedure when I do not need to focus entirely on the procedure, I'll be available for any questions. That makes requires a lot of sense. A certain amount. Go ahead. No, that makes a lot of sense. The second piece are the painful procedures. And this is a much trickier situation because it's very easy to become fatalistic about the pain of a procedure in a way that has us entering into a positive feedback cycle of dehumanization. A patient fights, perhaps out of delirium, more commonly, I think, out of a mixture of fear and delirium, against a procedure, and we are prone to reflexively move into even more authoritarian, even more dismissive modes. So I, this I think we have to be much more careful about. But there are certain things that we do that hurt people. Dressing changes of large and severe wounds. Occasionally people do need to be restrained in their beds. People may need a chest tube and may have relatively marginal blood pressure and oxygenation that require that we be very thoughtful and careful about the narcotics that we administer. So in saying that a little bit of dehumanization during a painful procedure is necessary, that's with a giant asterisk. But but ultimately, none of us can bear repetitiously inflicting pain on a beloved. And full humanization requires a kind of moral equivalence of the recipient of our care and a beloved. And related to this question of what we do around pain, there's this question of death. We 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 lose the people that we try to save. And there's been this horrible caricature in the popular literature that says that doctors are in utter denial of death and they can only see a patient at high risk of death who then dies as a medical failure and they are inherently dehumanizing for those traditional toxic authoritarian medical reasons. But the reality when I talk to my colleagues and trainees is that it's really sad when a person dies. And when you're fully invested in the life of the person that you're treating, you experience a bereavement. It, and those of us that have experienced a bereavement know that we're devastated for six weeks to three months and 
slowly try to dig out of that devastation over the course of the next nine months or a year or more and are never the same. And if the average doctor takes care of, I don't know, I'd have to make up a number, but the average intensive care unit doctor in the United States, probably 12 to 25% of her patients will die under her care. And so if you figure that on average somebody sees 60 patients in a week, for every week on service, you're going to have nine or ten people pass. I mean, this is a huge crush of potential bereavement that I think we need to acknowledge. And the approach that I've taken to finding the balance there is through the collaboration with the family members, giving them the room to be the ones that carry the grief on behalf of the team. And knowing that the person who died will be honored and grieved and cared about in their absence reassures me that it's okay, that it's okay that I don't experience the death of this patient as intensely as I would experience the death of my mother or of my child. So that's a long way to say, I think, highly technical procedures, high risk of death by way of managing the risk of severe bereavement and burnout and the requirement that we occasionally do things to people for their benefit with their permission that are quite painful are all times when we need just a little bit of careful, thought-through, appropriate dehumanization to find the balance. That makes a lot of sense. And congratulations on your book, Through the Valley of Shadows. Can you tell us a little bit oh, about thanks, it? Oh, thanks, Dr. Wu. Yeah, that book came after my experience as the spouse of a patient. I had a bit of a moral crisis, and I realized that my approach to both provision of clinical medicine and my approach to training the next generation of clinicians had often been callous and needlessly dehumanizing. And after some soul-searching, and to use an old religious term, repenting, changing my ways, I tried to think, how can I make sure that the next generation of clinicians doesn't make the same mistakes that I made? And got to work. I've always been a bit of a quantitative person and interested in methodology and scientific rigor, but have also been curious about the deep, hard questions of human life. And this felt like a just a marvelous way to combine those two interests. So we founded the Center for Humanizing Critical Care at Intermountain Medical Center, started a variety of research projects around phenotyping patients and families to understand better their experience of life-threatening illness in the intensive care unit work to try to understand person-centered and person-relevant outcomes after a critical illness, working to understand better how to fix advanced care planning and advanced directives, which have been so irrelevant to the actual human struggle of the vast majority of people who complete them or are told to complete them. And as we got underway and publishing papers and making changes, it occurred to me that it would be useful to have a book 
that summarize a lot of the issues at play and a lot of the work that not just we, but other people around the country are doing to try to improve the human experience of the intensive care unit. And Oxford, in its ethics and philosophy list, were gracious to publish it. And in it, I, I tried to write a book that was accessible and highly relevant to the practicing clinician. Even though it's in the ethics and philosophy line, I tried to make it not an abstruse academic text. And I also tried to write it, and I actually had some lay audience editing performed on the book to try to make it even more accessible to a lay audience. And my hope has been that both patients and families on the one hand and practicing clinicians on the other will be able to enter a shared conversation as a result of the book. Great. And can you tell us about what your beliefs are about living wills? Yeah, I touched on that briefly, and I don't want to bore uh, the audience with more. I, I, I put it into the book, but living wills are based on a few central cognitive and methodological errors. I understand why they arose. They arose in the 1970s as part of a backlash against the medical establishment and as part of a worry about whether anti-abortion activists would force doctors to provide medical care to patients in a permanent vegetative state. In practice, though, living wills have required false assumptions about the level of certainty that a clinician can have at a given juncture, about the frequency and prevalence of permanent vegetative state, and about what are called errors of affective forecasting. Affective forecasting means your ability to predict how you will feel emotionally in the future given a particular conditional event. For example, new disability of some sort. How will you feel if that happens? And there's huge amounts of psychological research that documents quite clearly that human beings are terrible at affective forecasting. But living wills require that people make a stance, usually when they're just filling out their regular will sometime in their 40s or 50s, that conditional on some hypothetical future that may or may not ever happen, this is certainly how I will feel and this is certainly how the doctors and nurses should behave in the presence of that condition. And that's just on the living wills side themselves. And then there's a lot of empirical data that suggests that A, Living wills say the opposite of half of the people who have completed them. Elegant work at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center a few years ago suggested that only half of the people with a DNR-DNI order at the time they were admitted to the general hospital floor actually wanted to be DNR-DNI. They just thought they'd been rejecting a permanent vegetative state rather than the procedures of innovation or even CPR if it might be of some benefit. And then the other empirical data suggesting that clinicians commonly overinterpret living wills to imply attitudes about other kinds of supportive treatments at a time when life is threatened. So I, I absolutely agree with the goals of 
advanced directives and advanced care planning to make sure that medical treatments and that the medical system is appropriately responsive to the patient as a person at the time of a life-threatening illness. But advanced directives and living wills, in my experience and in the data, just don't work. The only study that even sort of suggests that maybe there's a benefit from living wills per se was a non-randomized study that suggested that if you had a living will, you are more likely to die in a nursing home than a hospital. But there was no attempt to clarify whether death in a nursing home as opposed to a hospital or the timing of death or the nature of treatments around the time of death were true to the patient as a person or compatible with their values and priorities. So I, I think the time has come and gone for those, and we need a we need a replacement that actually helps the medical system to be true to the patient as a person during a life-threatening illness. So do you think there's a role for DNR orders right now, or they should just be replaced? I think DNR orders are a part of the toolkit of attentive clinicians and patients, and I think DNR orders should definitely be a part of an end-of-life pathway. And I think there are some patients who, for whatever reason, are, in fact, quite adamant that they do never want to undergo resuscitation. And for that group, I think they also are useful in their broad application, which is the carried intern or resident just meeting a person saying, if your heart stops, should we break your ribs? I think we should be done with that. The model that we use in my group is personalized care during serious illness. And we use very different questions around the DNR. And we tend to use DNR DNI orders in people who are self-consciously at the end of life, and commonly they also want the do not admit to the ICU order to be indicated rather than just the mere DNR, DNI. But the, the bulk of people that I talk to, when I actually ask them what, what it is they hope for and aspire to when their life is threatened, they want a full code unless it's for refractory cardiovascular collapse or independently imminent death. But if they don't wake up promptly after the CPR, let them die a natural death. So my, my concern about DNR, DNI outside of the relatively constrained context that I talked about is that most people want not the false dichotomy of you're either DNR, DNI, or we're going to make sure that you're a vegetable before you go, they want something that's responsive to conditional probabilities at the time of the relevant event. So my usual conclusion from a conversation with a person who feels like they've still got some fight in them and would like to at least try to get through the acute life-threatening illness is to say, you'll, you're currently a full code. If you don't recover promptly after the cardiac arrest, we will honor you as you die a natural death. And if we ever get to a point where it looks like you are imminently dying independent of the precise timing of the 
cardiac arrest, then we will tell you that honestly and help you and your family prepare for your natural death. And that model has worked very well for people without requiring them to make some hypothetical pronouncement about theoretical procedures in some distant future, which data suggests 50% of the time doesn't even represent what they want. The other thing to remember is that unanticipated cardiac arrests are the ones that are easiest to recover from. And you're really with a DNR, DNI order, trying to deal with the unanticipated cardiac arrests. But those are the torsade, the VF, the sudden aspiration, the sudden pneumothorax. And in those circumstances, we may have a 40, 45% meaningful cognitively intact recovery rate. And most people are not trying to say they want to reject that. Right. Uh, and you also differentiate between clinician-centered and patient-centered approaches to high-stakes medical care. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Living wills and DNR orders are really attempts to make our lives as clinicians easier and to make sure that we're able to implement desired strategies with a minimum of hassle. We don't realize that's what we're doing, but it is. But the focus on CPR as a procedure makes almost no sense from the patient's perspective because the details of how CPR is performed, which so many of us, I still remember as a trainee saying, if your heart stops, do you want us to break your ribs? Well, what? why would you break my ribs? What's the point? And why are you asking for my comments on this specific procedure? What, what people want is to know that they'll be honestly communicated with, that in the event of a life-threatening emergency, if there is a procedure that has reasonable prospects of achieving a patient's goals, according to the patient's definition of reasonable prospects, then go for it. Whatever the specific detail, whether there's a broken rib or not, go for it. They, they're not as, I mean, people like to know what's going on, but they don't want to be consulted as an expert in an area they're not expert in, which procedures ought to be performed at which points in time, and are much more interested in honest communication, guidance through a time of crisis, a clear sense about what is likely to come next and what the implications of it might be, and then making sure that the technical side of things is well performed. CPR is a medical miracle as a procedure. It's got a number needed to treat of somewhere between 7.5 and, and 12, depending on the data, for intact cognitive recovery. And it's a number needed to treat that's quite obvious. It's, it's certain death and then recovery. So if CPR as a procedure is a medical miracle, why are we so focused on making sure that people refuse the medical miracle? From the, from the patient's side, if the doctor really thinks that they're imminently dying to the point that CPR is absolutely futile, it's much more important to them to know that the doctor feels like they're imminently dying and it's time to gather their loved ones. It's time to make sure that they've wrapped up, that they've said goodbye, that whatever life completion is accomplished or accomplished, they don't need the procedures. That's a clinician-centered approach. 
Whereas the person-centered approach says, who is this person? Who do they love? And how will this person know that their time has come to die? Rather than, are we going to do this procedure or are we not going to do this procedure? Great. Thank you for your time. Are there any other comments that you would like to add? No, it, it's great to be with you, Dr. Wu. I appreciate the opportunity to talk. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Brown, for joining us.